So we find this peculiar story at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and Luke really has our attention at this point. If you read through his Gospel, this is kind of him driving it all home as to what it's going to look like for somebody to have an encounter with the risen Jesus. And we see this story unfold, and there's some things I want to take note of today, and that the author, Luke, wants you to see. There's some things that are literally happening. He tells us that there were two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We know one disciple's name from reading it was named Cleopas. We aren't sure what the other disciple's name was. Some people believe it might have been Cleopas's wife. Others believe just an unnamed disciple. We don't really know. Let's call him for our purposes today, Phil. Uh, so Cleopas and Phil, or whatever, Cleopas and the other disciple are walking to to, the road, to Emmaus. Now we know that Emmaus was seven miles actually west of the city of Jerusalem. And we know from having read, if you were reading before, that the, over the prior several days, some amazing events had taken place in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ had been ministering for three years, doing miracles, preaching, teaching, uh, showing people just who he is, trying to reveal himself, but he talking about something that he was going to do. And three days prior, three evenings prior, he had broken bread in an upper room with his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and remember. And then he passed them a cup and said, this is my blood, the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. Drink this and remember. And then some things happened that were unexpected for the disciples and they found their savior on a cross, breathing his last and being killed and executed at the hands of the Romans at the bequest of the Jews. And they watched as their savior was taken down from the cross and wrapped in burial garments and put in a tomb where and sealed by a heavy stone and a Roman guard there to guard because they were afraid that of, of his followers. And so they saw all this happen. And then we find out that the, the women, some of the, the women disciples went to the tomb that morning and they found that it was empty. And it's on the heels of this that we find these two disciples heading back to Jer back from Jerusalem to Emmaus, maybe where they were from, seven miles west of Jerusalem. And now we're supposed to read what's in the Bible. We're supposed to read into the Bible as well. It's, we're supposed to not just look at it literally, but we're supposed to read it literarily. This is someone trying to communicate a message to tell us to see something, and there's something deeper beneath the surface. You need to see about Cleopas and the other disciple that they aren't just leaving Jerusalem. This represents much more for them. They're leaving behind their hope. For them, what they put their hope in was dead and in the ground. And even with these early reports of a resurrection, they, that wasn't on their radar. They aren't believing at this point. And so they're heading back to Emmaus, basically leaving that whole window of their lives. Three years where they'd had their hopes sky high, they were leaving it dead in the ground. Luke goes out of his way to paint the scene. He says their face were downcast. In fact, a fun ge geographical fact, Emmaus is located seven miles west of Jerusalem. And we find through the details Luke records that they were actually, it was late in the evening. So picture this, they're walking that dusty road, face downcast into the sunset. The sun was setting and it's this kind of poetic picture of the loss of hope. You ever have your hope shattered? I'm not talking about being a Leafs fan every year. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about real hope, like hope, like a this is it type hope. This is the one type hope. This is the day. This is the job that's going to change everything. She's the one type hope. He's the one type hope. This is the time type hope. This is the day type hope. And then to find it just slipping away like a sunset off on the horizon. That's what Cleopas and the other disciple are experiencing, the loss of hope. You might have never been to Jerusalem or Emmaus, but you might have been on or might be on the road of dwindling hope. 
You might know what that feels like to lose hope, to have your hopes in something, to think that this is going to bring the change that I've been looking for and only to find that it was, it was a failure, to see that sun setting in the distance. It's a helpless feeling, isn't it, to lose hope? And, and Luke paints this picture for us where these disciples, for us to understand, have just experienced that feeling of the loss of hope. And you might be on that road today. You might be in a season of your life where you're like, the hope I had in this world is dwindling. The world is a discouraging place. And everywhere I look around, it just seems like the sun is setting on the good in the world. You might know that road more than some other people, depending on your life right now. And so we find out that Jesus shows up on the road. We don't really know how long he was walking with them, but at some point, he taps them on the shoulder and interrupts them. He actually grabs their attention and he asks them a question. And as I indicated earlier, Jesus never asks a question for his own benefit. He asks a question for our benefit. And so he asks them a question to prompt a conversation in a direction he wants to take it. He says, hey, guys, what are you talking about? It's on your mind. Why the long faces? And they go on and they say, uh, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who has not heard of the things that have happened over the last few days. Have you not been around? Like, how can you possibly be in this city and have not heard what's been going on? Are you living under a rock? Oh. <laughs> and so Jesus says, what things? Indulge me. I want details. Tell me what you think happened. I want facts. Give me the facts. Let's look back over the last few days. Let's, let's just look back at what happened back in Jerusalem, back in this holy city, the city of God, as Jews believe. How, let's just look back at what actually happened over these past few days. And let's just look at the evidence because I want to make sure your facts are straight. I want you to look again at what you think you saw because I don't think you're seeing it based on your faces. So let's look again. I believe that's the invitation every Easter is to look again at Jesus Jesus actually wants you to examine the evidence. Now, I know this time of year, you hear all kinds of things. Uh, you can read it in magazines. You can, read, you can see it uh, on documentaries, on TV, online, blogs, all kinds of chatter about who this Jesus is. And there's some people who have an opinion that he's just this kind of fabricated fraud. But one thing I know about people who are lying and hiding something is they don't want you to look closer. And Jesus says, no, 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 examine the evidence. I want you to look as close as you can. Let's take a microscope to this thing. I want you to see what you're not seeing. And today I want to invite you with me for a few minutes, especially if you're on the road to Emmaus, if you're on that road of dwindling hope and you feel like the sun is setting on your optimism and your hope in this life, I want us to look again at the real Jesus because Jesus invites us to do that. What things, he says. There are a few things, a few misinformations that a lot of the time present themselves this time of year surrounding Easter. The first one you'll hear with some people, they'll actually say that Jesus never even existed, that he's a made up figure in history and people created this story to kind of control people and create a religion, to, that which religion's just made to control people. And he's just a, he's a fictional character. You'll hear people say that. You'll hear other people say he's not a fictional character. He really did exist, but he never thought he was God or anything. You know, he just thought he was a good man like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or some other person. Like he just thought he was a good man. Tony Robbins. He's just a, you know, a good, a teacher. That's what he was. You'll hear people say that. And then you'll hear people say, no, no. He thought he was more than a good man. If you read what he said, he thought he was God. He's obviously, you know, and he was crucified. He really did exist. But 
He definitely didn't rise from the dead. Like the resurrection never actually happened. You'll hear all three of these things refuted. And I think Jesus would have us today take a look again at the evidence of all of these questions and ask the question, okay, let's take a look again at the historical Jesus. Did he actually exist? Now, I know it's really easy, especially when a guy gets up and opens the Bible. It's very easy to hear me read this the same way you'd hear me get up here and read Lord of the Rings. And you have this kind of you know, ethereal, mythological mist fill your mind. You'll, you know, that kind of glaze goes over. You give yourself permission to listen to this with a grain of salt. Like when the, the yellow text comes up on the screen, it says a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> right? But this is not grounded in myth. This isn't grounded in fiction. This is grounded in historical fact, these are real details in a real place at a real time with real people and history actually backs this up. This isn't something that just Christians believe happened. You can actually find throughout Roman history, Pliny the Elder, Tacitus, they're all putting Jesus where he was and where Christians have said he was for centuries. They're also saying, third party saying, no, Jesus of Nazareth really existed. He really did lead a movement. He really was crucified uh, at, the, at the, you know, the hands of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. That really happened. And people after that started to say, we saw him risen. The Romans state that with no agenda. The Jews also state that. Josephus talks about the same thing. Jesus of Nazareth, he was a real guy, really in history. He led a movement. He was really, he was really uh, executed at the hands of the Romans on a cross. And people really did, a few days later, start saying, no, we saw him. He's alive and he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. So you have people who aren't believers in the lordship and the risenness of Jesus actually saying, okay, but it is a historical fact that Jesus is a person that Jesus actually existed. So for those of you who might be here today and say, I don't even know if he existed. There is not a historian with, you know, with worth their salt who does not believe that Jesus really existed. So look again at the historical Jesus, but that's not where most people get tripped up. You do the tiniest bit of reading and you'll find that Jesus really did exist. And this isn't where Cleopas and Tom were, were tripped up either. This, 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 they knew he, was, he existed because they'd followed him for three years. They, they walked with him. They listened to him teach. They saw his miracles. They saw him do amazing things. And he even said he was a great man. Remember what they said? Jesus said, what things? And they said about Jesus of Nazareth, this great man, a prophet, they said, mighty indeed. God did great things through him. There was some cool stuff that happened. But they said, he died, so obviously he's not the Messiah, they said. We had hoped he was the Messiah, the one that the Jews were believing God was going to send to restore all things and to become the King of kings and Lord of lords. We'd hoped that was who he was, but clearly he's dead, so that's not who he is because our version of the Messiah isn't a dead one. And so they say, well, he's not really the Messiah, but look what Jesus, Jesus pushes back and wants you to see and wants you to see something deeper. Look what he says in verse 25. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. Uh, if that was 21st century, you'd be like, are you serious right now? <laughs> For real, how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Did this not have to happen? Was it not written in the book that it was going to happen this way? And then watch what he says. It says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning, say it, himself. So Jesus checks their facts and says, look again at the biblical Jesus, that I am not some prophet. I am not some motivational preacher. I did not come here to inspire you and give you some life hacks. That's not why I'm here. And if you look back at the scriptures, you're missing something. That the scriptures from day one said this was the plan. That from day one, this was going to be the plan. You know, the scripture actually says that before the foundations of the earth, the lamb was slain. That this was not some, uh uh-oh, there's sin. Now what are we going to do? Planned by God. God planned it from the beginning. Jesus was the plan from the beginning. And the Bible says that he opened the scriptures and beginning from Genesis right through the prophets, he opens Genesis and he says, you know, when sin entered the world... And and God spoke to Adam and Eve and the serpent and said to the serpent, I am going to raise up a son who will crush your head. Jesus says, yeah, I was talking about me. And then he flips the page and he he goes to to Genesis chapter six. You know the the story where God brought judgment and wrath upon the earth in Noah, the story of Noah's ark and God flooded the earth and cleansed the earth of all unrighteousness, but he spared, he spared Noah and he gave them this ark, this wooden structure that brought them from death to life. Jesus says, yeah, that was actually pointing to me. That was about me. I, I did that ultimately, he says. Let's keep going. You know, Abraham, that God called out of obscurity and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to establish you on the earth and your, your family will go on forever and ever and ever. It was really, he was really talking about me. You know, Abraham and Isaac, where, where Abraham was tested to lay down his son and Isaac carried the wood up the hill and he laid down and then God said, no, I provide the sacrifice. It was really talking about me. And Jesus keeps flipping the pages. You know, Moses, when God, the great liberator, brought the the, the Jews out of slavery in Egypt and gave them the law to direct them. Jesus says, that was actually about me. I'm the great liberator, bringing you out of slavery to sin and death. And I'm writing the law of God on your heart. You know the story about Joshua who brought you out of wandering into the land of plenty, the great leader? That's about me. You know the story of judges, the ones who ruled with righteousness? That's really about me. You know David, the king, the giant slayer, that's really pointing to me and all of this book points to Jesus the whole thing's about him this was not some plan B this was not some backup plan this was the plan from the beginning that's why Jesus said did not the Messiah have to suffer these things my plan was to die and rise in victory from the beginning and he opened the scripture up and explained to them I am not just a good man good man I'm the Lord I'm the Lord. Look again at Jesus. I love his gentle frustration with them. Like, you idiots. I came like I said I would. I died like I said I would. And I rose like I said I would. And I'm ruling like I said I would. I did it just how the word said it was going to happen. Open your eyes. But I think for them, it wasn't, it wasn't even necessarily just the scripture that had them tripped up. I think for them, 
the hard part was this whole resurrection piece because when generally their experience, similar to our experience, when someone dies, you don't, you don't rise again, right? That's just not, that's not the human experience. When someone dies, that's generally it. I mean, I know there's resuscitations and stuff like that, but when someone's been dead three days after hanging on a cross and being flogged within an inch of your life and then being wrapped up uh, in, in garments and closed in a tomb, people don't get up from that. And so when they saw him go in the tomb, that was it. It was over. And so for them, they struggled with the resurrection. They couldn't see who Jesus was because they couldn't see he was a risen Savior. They couldn't wrap their heads around the resurrection. And that's where a lot of us, and I probably suspect today, whether you're here online, there's a lot of us that have, have a struggle with that. It's not that we don't believe that Jesus existed. It's not that we don't believe that the Bible talks about Jesus or Jesus even believed who he said he was. It's that, really, he's risen? And that's where you start to place this whole idea. Maybe it was a big conspiracy. Maybe it was a big hoax. Maybe it's something that the early disciples cooked up and, you know, they made this big conspiracy so that they could create this religion and control people. And maybe that's really what it was. But, but if you start to look at the facts, it, it points the opposite direction. Jesus says, look again. Look again. Do you know how extensive of a conspiracy it would have to be to take even just 11 disciples and get them to take a secret lie all the way to their own deaths. And I'm not talking about like death on palliative care. All of the disciples died believing that he is risen and they would not take it back. People don't die for lies. Hundreds of people Hundreds of people witnessed the resurrection Jesus, resurrected Jesus. That's more verifiable facts than anything else in that, in that day and age. I think it's interesting too. Some of the reasons I believe the Bible is true is actually because of the rough edges. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that, that, that it's actually, if, if someone was writing this to try to trick you, they would never have included some of the details because, because it actually makes it weaker. For instance, it was women who discovered Jesus at the empty tomb. Do you know in the first century, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in court. You couldn't, it didn't matter. It was invalid. And it was women who found the empty tomb. It was women who went on record and said, he is risen first. And, and C.S. Lewis makes the point, says they, it's written that way because that's the way it happened. And over and over again, you see this evidence of the resurrection that Jesus really actually rose in body, not in just idea. This isn't just some spirit. He's not a ghost. He's not the, you know, the feeling. You'll hear some, some even Christians say, you know, he didn't really rise from the dead. It's more of an inspirational story where, you know, it helps us be inspired so that when we die and go to heaven. And it's, it's, this is not some inspiring story where you see some ghost or some spirit of good feelings of resurrection. Jesus literally rose in body. That's why he shows up and he eats food. That's why he shows up and he holds his hands out. He says, touch me. I'm actually here. It's inconvenient that he rose because it forces us to look again at everything. And that's what Jesus is doing right here with the disciples. He's saying, no, look again. I rose. I'm here in body. I know you weren't expecting it, but see me. Look again. In verse 28, it says this. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went with them to stay. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and began to give it to them. 
And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Something jogged the revelation. They saw it. They saw it because of something. What? When he broke the bread, he had done that three days before and all of a sudden it clicks. He said he was going to do this. He said he was going to die. He told us before it happened, this is all part of the plan. And all of a sudden things start connecting, light bulbs start going off. You ever have a moment where you have a, a realization and it starts connecting everything? Anybody ever see the movie, The Sixth Sense? Yeah. I don't want to spoil it for you, but Bruce Willis is dead. Um, <laughs> If you haven't seen it, you had 15 years. It's not my fault. 20 years. <laughs> it's this thriller where like this whole time you think that Bruce Willis is this guy trying to figure out this mystery with his tormented little boy. I see dead people. And, uh, and, and at the end, you had this crazy twist where it turns out Bruce Willis was the dead guy that the kid was seeing the whole time. So it's just crazy. And I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, I was just out of high school or in high school. And I was like, oh my goodness. He was dead the whole time. And then you go back and watch it the second time. You only watch that movie twice. The first time your mind blows and the second time you go back and you're like, whoa, he really was dead the whole time. His wife's not even looking at him, which how plausible is that? A guy can go a whole movie without his wife talking to him. We think that's perfectly normal, perfectly normal. But you watch it the second time and you, you start connecting all these dots. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. It really, he really was dead. And that's like the, the, the kind of the polar opposite of what we're talking about here. These guys start connecting dots. They see that he's alive. And all of a sudden, it puts everything into different light. If he's risen, then that puts this whole cross thing and the resurrection in a whole new light. And it starts clicking for them. They start looking again, not just at the risen Jesus and seeing him, but now they look through the light of the resurrection into what Easter is, even means. Look again at Easter. Get clarity about what it actually says. All of a sudden, he breaks the bread and the cross makes sense. Jesus said he was going to die. Jesus said he was going to hand himself over. Jesus said, I'm not, I'm not a victim here. I'm, I'm laying my life down. No one takes me down. I'm laying my life down. I am volunteering this. Look again at the cross of what it really says. The cross says that God is holy. The cross says that God is just. He's a God of justice and righteousness, that God hates sin. That's the big question for most of us. When we try to wrestle with the idea of, is there a God? The big question most of us have is, well, if there's a good God, then why is there so much destruction in the world? Why does God allow these bad things to happen to good people? That's the big hang-up for most people. But the Bible actually says God hates the bad things that happen. That that was never part of his, his will. That God is a God of life and abundance and all the death and sin and destruction in this world is the result, it's the result of sin. God hates it. And on the cross, we see God's wrath poured out on it in judgment. But here's the crazy thing about the cross. The cross doesn't just say that God is holy and just and will not tolerate sin, but it also says God is merciful and loving and gracious, because here's the great conundrum for God. It's not just that he hates sin, but he loves sinners. You see, sin affects us all. The Bible says the wages uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have sin in us, and you know that. And if you don't, if you think you don't have sin, you have more sin than all of us. You have the sin of pride. You know that. 
And so that's the great conundrum for, for, for God is what do I do? How do I, how do I destroy sin without destroying sinners? And so he provides the cross and the cross stands gleaming saying, this is our God, God of justice, God of righteousness, God who has a plan to end all sin and bury it in the ground and God who has a plan to spare all sinners and bring them to life. That's what the gospel is about. The gospel is this great exchange where God's wrath and mercy and justice and love meets. It's, it's the place where sin enters the life of Jesus so righteousness can enter the life of his followers. It's the place where life leaves his body so life can come into ours. It's the place where he takes our burden so he can set us free. The cross is the place where he is broken so we can be made whole. The cross is the place where he was bruised so that we can be healed. The cross is the place where he was separated and forsaken. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the loneliest person who's ever existed. In that moment, he was completely separate, separate from God. That was hell, to be separate from God. But his separation meant our acceptance. That's what the cross says. And if he is risen, that validates it. That says he, he needed to die. That says your sin warranted his execution. That's what it says. It's glaring, isn't it? Look again at the cross. Look again at the empty tomb. Not just that he died. We don't just serve a God who loves us and forgave us of our sin, but we serve a God who had a plan to bring life through death. That's what the whole gospel is. You can't separate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They are a package deal. So we need to look again at the risen Jesus, at the empty tomb and what it says. One thing it clearly states, and Jesus seems to be pretty adamant to Cleopas and Ben, to say, I am Lord. I am the Messiah. If Jesus is risen, then all of the claims that got him killed, you know the claims about like, I am God? The Jews didn't like that much. The Jews didn't think a person, God would come in, a, in, a, in, a, as, in the form of a person. All the claims of his godness, of his lordship, of the fact that I am the king of kings and lord of lords. When he said, you know, before Abraham was, I am. All of those claims, when he rose again, become validated, don't they? They become validated. When he says, I'm Lord over life itself, I am Lord, I hold the keys to death and hell, his resurrection screams loud and clear, clear Jesus is Lord. And the resurrection, make no mistake about it, don't get caught up in the fuzzy feels of Easter. This is the inauguration of a king. He wears a crown of glory after the crown of thorns. He stands in glory. The Bible says that he is seated at the right hand of God. That means in the place of power. That's what that represents. He is the king. He did not come here to kind of rule quietly. And the Bible says he will return again in complete and utter triumph. But even now, his, his inauguration has begun. That's what the resurrection is. He is a Lord. And the resurrection causes us to have to deal with it, doesn't it? Like you serve a Lord, King. This isn't some guy who's willing to share that title. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he is not willing to share it, to share that title. I think that's one of the interesting things. If you, if you read, if we had time to look at it today, if you read some of the things that happen in the book of Acts, you see like the Apostle Paul, for instance, he was offended by Christianity. How dare, how dare 
Jesus and his followers say that he's, he's God in the flesh. How dare they say that? That's idolatry. He was offended by Christian thinking. He, he hated it and he actually wanted them killed. And then what happens is he had a revelation and a meeting with the risen Jesus where he saw him and all of a sudden it didn't matter if he was offended or not. Jesus is clearly Lord and I lay down my rights. The resurrection says that, that he is the Lord and he's not asking your opinion. He's not saying, hey, Brent, what do you think? He doesn't really care, you know, like, like you living your truth or staying true to yourself. He said, no, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father. So you live your truth all the way to destruction. You follow your heart all the way to destruction. Or lay down your crown at the feet of the risen Lord and find life. That's the invitation of the resurrection. He rose. If he rose, he's Lord. And if he rose, let me just, I'm almost done. If he rose, that means that if we place our hope in him, our hope is alive. Always. It means that no matter what happens, there is nothing. If we place our hope in Jesus, that means that there's nothing that can happen that can rob our hope because our hope is not in an institution. It's not in an individual that can't, that can't defeat death. We've, we've hung our hope in Jesus, the risen Jesus, who has already conquered death, who's already paid for our sins so that we know no matter what we go through, he's going to bring us on into eternity through the same power that raised him up. That's the amazing invitation. We serve a risen Lord. This is a living hope. This is a present reality. This is not something that happened. It's something that is happening. You need to hear that. Like, I, I know many of us saw the, the cathedral in Paris this week. It was really sad to see, you know, to see it, Notre Dame burn down and to see the spire fall and you know, I was saddened to see the imagery just like you were, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, it's this beautiful piece of art and represented like 200 years of, of labor and, and love and worship even for the people who built it. I mean, that's a beautiful thing and represents history and it's part of the French history and all that. I, I get that. But I started reading things online and reading blogs and news posts and stuff. And people were connecting beyond just like the art and the expression and the beauty of that thing, of, of that cathedral, they were almost connecting like the hope of the church to it. Like if we don't run in there and save those relics, we don't get that piece of the cross or we don't get that crown of thorns that some people think Jesus actually wore. If we don't save that from the flames, somehow that's going to diminish our hope. We don't serve somebody who was we serve somebody who is. Like I was thinking about this the other day. The only time you cling to something, some old garment, the only time you cling to something is when someone is gone. Like uh, my, my mother did something really nice. Uh, the year after my grandfather passed away, she went into his closet and, and got a bunch of uh, his old shirts, his old flannel shirts. And my grampy, uh, he knew what he liked. And he was a businessman, did well, but I tell you what, you take the boy out of the woods, but you can't take the woods out of the boy. And he only wore flannel most of the time. He had a ton of like just comfy flannel shirts he liked. And my, my mom went in and made these pillows out of my grandfather's shirts, which is a really awesome thing. And it was just a sentimental thing for my family to share. And, and that was appropriate because my grandfather passed away and gone, gone to heaven. And so we have to wait to, to, to experience him again. We have to live with his memory right now. But 
What would have been really weird is if like five years before, like before my grandfather ever got sick, my mom went into his closet and started cutting up his clothes and making pillows. It would have been weird. And, she, and my grandfather probably like, what are you doing? That's my favorite shirt. I'm right here. And, and I think that's what we're running the risk of doing. Like when we start saying, no, save the crown of thorns. Save, save the cross. Don't let it burn up. Look, we don't, we, our hope does not hang upon an old rugged cross. Our hope hung on the old rugged cross. It is in a living Jesus. He's risen. He's alive. This is a living hope, a present hope. We don't look back. We're looking forward in the light of who he is. That's what the resurrection is about. We have a living hope. It's not something that happened. It's happening and continuing to happen. And the more we turn towards it, the more light and life fills us. That's how this story ends. Look at 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth, a new birth. Imagine the light that catches the eye of a child when they, they come out of the womb. A new birth. Get that picture. It's like a whole new world. A new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You see, before Jesus, you're just in the womb. You have to be born again into a new birth, a new hope. When you come into Jesus and you, you realize the risen Savior, this is this new world, this is new life. That's what happens, and that's what happened to these guys. Look at it. I'll, I'll end here in a second. It says in verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight and they asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Did we not just come alive where he, where he was? And then it says this, I love this. I love this picture. Luke's such a great writer. He says, then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 and assembled together and said, it's true. They returned at once to Jerusalem. You see, when you look again at Jesus and you see the risen Jesus, it causes you to look again at Easter and see it for what it really is. And then if you see Easter, if you see the light that is dawned in the resurrected Jesus, it, you see that it casts light on everything else. You see, we actually step into a new reality and you, it causes you to actually look again at everything. I love that picture. It says they saw him. They said, did we not come alive around him? And then it says they got up at once and went where? Back to Jerusalem. So they're literally on the same road they were on just hours before as the sun was setting. They start to have some supper and, and they're hanging out. And then all of a sudden Jesus does this thing and they see him. Jesus disappears. Why does Jesus disappear? Because we live by faith, not by sight. He disappears. And then it says this. And it says at once, immediately, not downcast anymore. They got pep in their step. And immediately they get up. And what do they do? They go back on the same road in a new direction. Whole new direction. And now the sun is not setting upon them. It's actually rising before them. They're heading what? They're not heading west. They're heading east. And the night is over and they're heading towards the morning. Now, we don't know what time we, they got there, but that's the picture that, that Luke is painting here for us. They're literally heading into a, a rising sun. And that's what the resurrection does. It casts a whole new light on the same road. The road of dwindling hope now becomes the road of ever-rising, ever-increasing hope. The road of pain and confusion now becomes the road of peace and truth. 
the rising sun. The road of wandering now becomes the road of purpose. Note, note they went at once. They weren't kicking stones on the way. The road of fear now becomes the road of courage. The road of loneliness now becomes the road of knowing God and being known by God and knowing that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because he's with me on this road. It changes everything. It changes everything. Jesus told us, in this world, you will have troubles. You're still going to go over some bumps. There'll be some ditches and valleys, but my light will illuminate the whole thing and I will never leave you or forsake you. I had a conversation with my grandmother uh, this week. She's in the hospital. She had a heart attack a few weeks ago. She's 90 years old. And uh, I was in there by myself with her and got to have a, having a conversation with her. And she, the woman's got like nine lives. Like she's had bypass surgeries and beepers and pacemakers. And she's had like de decades of it. It's amazing. She's had so much tinkering with her ticker. It's unbelievable. And but she's done amazing, and she's actually like, she's doing all right. So we're praising God for that. We'll take it. But I was in there with her, and she's waiting now to, to, to be placed in a nursing home. And so you know how that must be, like just waiting. And, but she, she's fine, and she uh, got asking me about the church because she loves the church, not just because she was part of King's Church for a few decades, but she loves the church because she was a pastor's wife and now, you know, her son and son-in-law are pastors and my dad had a ministry. And, and so like just ministry has been part of our family and now I, I pastor the church she loves. And so she's asking me about the church and I was telling her, it's been amazing. We're just in a great season where it's not just we're seeing people grow in depth, but we're seeing, as I said, Grammy, I love seeing new people. I love seeing the look on their face. And I said, I wish I could make it happen. I can't. But I love seeing that look on their face when they get it. And they see Jesus is risen. And they put their faith in him. And I, got, and I said, Grammy, I'm seeing it. We're seeing it all the time. We're seeing people who have like no church background. They didn't grow up with a grandmother who knew how to pray for them. And yet they're coming and they're finding the good news of Jesus, that Jesus still saves. The gospel is still good news. He still changes lives. I said that to my Grammy and she goes, it's true, you know. And I go, what's true? She goes, he is who he says he is. She goes, I gave my life to him. I was 13 years old. She goes, 77 years. I was 13 years old. She goes, in every season of my life, she goes, I remember I went from Graham and Ann. I was 13 years old. I went with some of my friends. We went to wait tables at a camp. And uh, it was there, I was trying to make some extra money. I wasn't a believer. Some of my friends were. And she said, it was there uh, one night beside an Oregon at a camp meeting. I had a, I had a moment where I decided I need to follow this Jesus. And I knelt down and I invited him into my life and I gave my life to him. And she said, from that moment on, she said, I didn't feel all that different. But she said, ever so subtly, she said, I remember being on the Graham and Ann ferry, riding home for the fall, that I was seeing things differently than I, I had when I came over. She said, and it's been increasing my whole life, even through the difficult season. And my Grammy's been through some stuff. She's, you know, through, through her stage of being a teenager and the young adult and being newly married and then having kids and being a pastor's wife in a time where there was some major expectation on the pastor's wife. And, you know, it's just seeing, seeing the kids grow up. He was faithful through that season. He never left me. And then when your grandfather died 31 years ago, he's been with me ever since he's been gone. He's never left me. She's seen 
Uh, her son-in-law pass on before her, a granddaughter pass on before her. She says, through it all, he keeps rising. Do you have the hope of Jesus today? He is who he says he is. He really is Lord. He really did die for you. He really did rise for you. And he really is reigning forever and ever and ever. Have you, have you given your life to him? I'd ask you to stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. If you're at West or Halifax, let's just stand together. If it's just with you, just this moment, we would, we would be missing out on what Jesus actually wants to do today if we didn't do this. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, the Bible tells us that to find salvation is upon your confession and your invitation. Note that Cleopas and the other disciple, it wasn't until they invited Jesus in that they started to see. Some of you are waiting for Jesus to just open your eyes, but you have to invite him. And the only place he will not impose his will on is over your heart. And you've got to invite him in and say, I want, I want to give you my life. Come in. Let the gospel do what it can only do in my life. And you have to make that move. And so I'm inviting some of you today for the first time ever. Some of you need to return. You've walked away and you need to give your life to Jesus today. And I'm going to invite you to do that just in the privacy of your own life. But today as, as one body and one church, whether it's your first time or whether you've been a believer for years and years, I want us to pray this together out loud, even for the encouragement of people around you to just set our faith in the risen King today and give him our lives all over again. So just say this with me out loud. Jesus, I give you my life. I repent of my sins and I turn to you today. Now, and forevermore, I believe you are who you say you are. You have my life. Amen. Amen. Just your heads bowed and eyes closed. Today, you need to make a confession. You need to say, I made that decision. I'm putting my life in Jesus. And I made that decision. You need to make it, make a confession. So I want you just when I count to three, would you just shoot your hand up in the air to let me know and to let the Lord know I'm inviting you in right now. And I'm just turning, I'm turning my life over to you and I'm heading in a whole new direction. Would you just at the count of three, just slip your hand up. One, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Two, don't miss this opportunity. Believe in your heart and be saved. Three, would you just slip your hand up high if that's you? Wow, hands all over the room. Awesome. Hands all over the room. Come on, church. Hands all over the room. We thank you, Lord. God, we thank you today. We give you glory. We thank you that you are risen. We serve a risen king. We have a living hope. Our hope is alive today. Come on, give us some celebration and praise to Jesus. We love you, Lord.